Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. Just Bruce today, because we had a guest who just deserved being released as quickly as possible. So we had the opportunity this week to talk to probably the single most influential person in organizational psychology and in how we think about organizations. And that's because Amy Edmondson, in the last 20, 25 years, her work on psychological safety has become just really the bedrock of a lot of the way that we think about teams and organisations. Amy Edmondson, while she didn't initially come up with the phrase psychological safety, has certainly turned it into the vernacular. It's become currency of daily discussions in businesses and, and offices around the world. What an opportunity it was to sit down and have a conversation with Amy. She's written several books that you might have seen in the past. She's got a brand new book that's just come out called The Right Kind of Wrong, which is a pretty comprehensive exploration of her work, going into some of the the, the sort of intriguing detail of how she stumbled upon psychological safety when she was studying hospital teams and observing that the best sort of teams seem to be making more mistakes than the worst teams. And she was sort of confounded, initially thinking maybe I'd, she'd loaded the data in wrong. I think you're going to love this discussion. Um, she's joined on the discussion by Octavius Black. Octavius is the founder of Mind Gym. You might be familiar with Mind Gym there. They're behaviour change specialists. They help turn behavioural science into cultural and behavioural change inside organisations. Fascinating organisation. They they work with half of the FT100. And the interview with Amy was facilitated by Mind Gym. So thank you to them. Here's our discussion with Amy Edmondson and Octavius Black from Mind Gym. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy and Octavius. I wonder if to kick off, you could just introduce, I mean, how dare I even ask this, but introduce who you are and, and what you do. Well, I'm a researcher at heart, a researcher and a teacher at, at Harvard, where I've been for 27 years. And I study people and organizations, how people interact in organizations and how that shapes the results that their teams and their organizations get. Octavius, do you want to introduce yourself? 
Yes, thanks, Bruce. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a business called Mind Gym. We're behavioral scientists in a different form because we look at how to apply it in the world of work. So we work with most of the FTSE 100 companies, most of the S&P 100 companies on areas like culture, leadership, and performance. And we've had about 5 million people go through our programs now. So we've got quite a lot of data about what does and doesn't work. Amy, to to kick off, you mentioned there sort of organisational psychology and, and really... Certainly from a layperson's perspective, you've you've contributed as much to that field as anyone. What do you think the, the state of organisational psychology is right now? Is, is it in good health? There's been a, a couple of bumps in the road, I think, you know, sort of big stories that have maybe questioned whether we can always trust this as a science. What, what do you think the state of organisational psychology is right now? Wow, that's a big question. I. I think the state of organizational psychology is essentially quite sound and healthy. And, you know, in in large part due to the work of people like like Octavius, where it's, I think there's a a very short lag between uh, discoveries and the, you know, really good work to implement them, right? To, to, to get, to start experimenting because there's, there's a gap between sort of learning something that works in the lab or even from field research. And then well, hold on. How would you change things, right? How would you help people put this to good use? And, and that kind of action research and implementation is an ongoing learning journey in its own right. And I think enough people understand and appreciate that basic idea that it makes you know makes the work you know quite relevant and 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 quite healthy now there are you know there are the occasional headlines that you will see um largely i think uh, largely related to lab studies rather than field research um and um it I guess there's there's a there's a lot we could we could say about that, but I, I don't think it's the heart and soul of of the matter by any means. Yeah. So, so look, it, and it's in the field that we're most interested. So, kick us off. The, the way that you've revolutionised this space is by bringing our attention to this idea that I think you know all of us have now become familiar with. All of us reflect on whether we've created it, whether whether we've been the cause of the destruction of it, this idea of psychological safety. Yes, and, and let me reframe it or rephrase it as psychological safety essentially is about creating a learning environment, right? an environment where people, despite the interpersonal challenges and, and impression management challenges, are willing to lean in. They're willing to speak up with mistakes and problems and ideas and a request for help. They're, they're willing to do those interpersonally risky behaviors because of what's at stake, you know, because they care enough about the project, the customers, their colleagues, what have you, that they're, they're willing to take those interpersonal risks for, in a sense, the, the greater, the greater good. And, and long winded way of saying a learning environment and a learning environment is not natural, right? but it is doable. Okay, right. So there's a critical thing there. So, so, so um, I was really interested. 
just if you had a specific definition of psychological safety, because that learning environment and it not being natural actually is a really interesting point that we can move on from there. So just quickly, just how do you define it? A, a belief that interpersonal risks can be taken without negative consequence. And, and you said there, wow, what a fascinating idea. The idea that a learning environment isn't a natural environment. Wow. Because probably, I think we all flatter ourselves to some, some extent that we've created this environment that people can learn. What gets in the way of, of a learning environment? Knowing. <laughs> Knowing and uh, impression management, the desire to look good, the desire to be right, the the kind of almost um, automatic confidence that we are right, at least in our take on a situation. Right? We, as we assume we are seeing reality in all its glory. We don't think kind of spontaneously, oh, I'm seeing reality filtered through the lens of my background, my biases, my beliefs. No, we think we see reality. And that works out pretty well for us most of the time right? until we sort of encounter someone who, oddly, sees it differently. And, and then we assume very quickly, well, they must be missing something. Surely not I. And, and I know it's, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating to, to, to make the point, but little kids, you know, very young children, of course, are naturally learning and curious and trying all sorts of things. And many of them don't work out and they, oh, that was interesting. Let me try this instead. Whereas, you know, late stage school children and then working adults it's it's all but second nature to uh to want to be right um to believe you are right to believe you see reality to kind of close down to disconfirming evidence you know again not deliberately not at all but just by way of expertise by way of experience I've seen you talk about the, the uh, desire to avoid appearing obstructive, that we don't raise questions, the desire to avoid appearing ignorant, that we don't raise questions. Um, and all of these things, to some extent, seem to be about the preservation of status. Is, is status yes. an important subtext to psychological safety? Yes, it is. So status and or reputation, right? I want people to think I'm smart, capable, helpful, positive. I don't want them to think I'm incompetent, intrusive, negative, etc., and, and so we naturally, and we're very skilled at it. One of my wonderful mentors, Chris Argerus, had this term skilled incompetence. Like we're skilled at being incompetent at learning. You know, we're skilled at um, impression management. We will, we will hold back without even knowing we're holding back. When we perceive there's a, there's a possibility that you won't, you know, the other person or people won't, think well of us if we do that thing. I'm interested about this idea of the learning environment not being natural. And where my brain started to go is, is it not natural in certain contexts and it's more natural in others? So you talk about maybe school kids, yes. the environment, perhaps also just the brain development at that stage, but the environment certainly makes it more natural. And I'm wondering whether it's the business structures and the ways we've set those up make it, less natural. Do you see that? Precisely. No, precisely. And I wasn't as clear as I, as I should be about that, right? It's, 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 we, um, we drive learning out, you know, Deming wanted us to drive fear out of the organization. Instead, we drive learning out of the organization, 
again, of course, not all the time, but we do this by the nature of our systems. Just this morning at a, at a meeting with some um, HR leaders, uh, someone was saying, this is all well and good, and our performance management systems still penalize people for having you know, spoken up about a failure, for having you know, tried to share that information so that others weren't, you know, weren't vulnerable to doing the same thing. We, we value that, we want that, and yet our performance management system will will penalize people for it. So that is a way of engineering learning out. Yeah, there seems to be almost a, a disconnect between what people want and then the systems they've created and how they're reinforcing certain behaviors. Certainly, I imagine you speak to most leaders and they want innovation, they want risk-taking, and yet the signals that the culture sends back are perhaps that, oh, well, it wasn't okay to, to, to fail That's or right. to make mistakes. And do you see kind of, yeah, there's this need then to create habits and rituals to reinforce psychological safety and failure? Yes, we love risk-taking, but they should all work out. Say what? (laughs) Right? That just, that's illogical. But I think many organizations are full of illogical practices and habits. Could you talk through a little bit more how you might seek to create a psychologically safe environment? I, I was really struck the idea with of blameless reporting when you talked about Ford. But are there other tricks? Are there other things that you can seek to facilitate being a psychologically safe environment? Yeah, you know, con- conceptually, I talk about three things that are, you know, you could think of them in a way as before, during and after, but that's not that's a little oversimplified, but the three things, the three categories are, one is reframing the work, you know, calling attention to the actual nature of the work we do, you know, why it's uncertain, it's new, it's interdependent, you know, all of those features of the work that literally require us to be speaking up and leaning in, or we won't do it well. So refer to those kinds of things early and often. And then proactively invite voice, ideas, questions, concerns into the mix, largely through good questions, by asking questions. You know, what are you seeing? What are we missing? What other ideas do you have? And also by creating structures that are, uh, you know, sort of set up to elicit good thinking, whether those are after action reviews or brainstorming meetings or um, just simple rounds where we each discuss, you know, what we see, what we think. Um, but, but just the scaffolding that makes it a little easier for people to engage and a little harder for them to sit it out. Right? It's, you know, it's almost, it's almost, it's, a, it's important to lower the cost of voice, but it's also important to raise the cost of silence. And then, and then finally, there's the practice of, you know, how do you respond? Right? How do you respond to bad news? How do you respond to ideas you don't like? And it ought to be in a learning-oriented way. So you, you, you mentioned blameless reporting. Blameless reporting is a policy that says we really want to hear from you. We really want to know the things that are going wrong so that we can make them better. And it really is, it ticks two of those boxes. It's, it's an invitation, right? Here's a system and we've facilitated, we made it easy for you to give us data that we didn't otherwise have. Um, and blameless, the response to your input will not be 
problematic. We won't penalize you for, you know, for participating in this in this reporting process. So it, it sort of does both. I think when you said that the new chief executive Ford introduced blameless reporting, I think you said the, it, the, the moment from when someone spoke up to the resolution was like 15 seconds. And it was just, it's, it's incredible how this can not feel like a viable branch. I don't I wonder if you could tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's the story of Alan Mulally who about a decade ago, a uh, little more came in and um, Ford was in, you know, just tremendous trouble really, you know, on, on life support from an economic uh, perspective at that point. And his belief was that it had sound, you know, the company had sound products and the possibility to really turn itself around, but it would, it would require truth telling and it would require, especially well, all the way through, but especially in that executive committee, that top management team that they meet weekly and rigorously and they go over the data, what's happening and why. Um, And he asked his direct reports to use a simple color coding scheme, you know, green for, for good, yellow for caution and progress, and red for problems. And lo and behold, everything is green. Right? So he, he finally he finally really pushed harder, and he said, "Listen, we're we're on track to lose seventeen billion dollars this year. What isn't going well?" Notice how he's reframing. You know, can't be all green out there because seventeen billion loss, right? And then he asks what I would call a good question: What isn't going well? Finally, someone reveals a very serious problem with a new vehicle launch. And everybody, of course, for a moment thought that guy was going to get fired on the spot. Of course not. That would not have been a constructive learning-oriented response. But what did happen was he said, thank you for that clear line of sight. How can we help? And then three other executives um, spoke up with, I think I've seen something like that before, here, there, etc., I have an idea that you might try. And another saying, I have a bunch of engineers I'm happy to send to that plant tomorrow. Right? That conversation, which didn't fix the problem, but it started the fixing, took 12 seconds, according to Mulally, Right, So it's almost the people think, well, if we have psychological safety, it'll take too long. Right? The truth is it takes too long when we don't, because that having that conversation, which took 12 seconds, took several weeks to initiate, you know, several weeks before people were willing to have it. That's wasted time. I love the fact that you are, you frequently give examples that are so immediately in the in the mind. VW Dieselgate, Boeing Air Max, you know, the Rust film set. These things are, are stories that have reached national international news. Is there anything in common between them? Because I think you're really sharp at illustrating the absence of psychological safety is is something that underpins all of these. People have known there's something wrong, but they haven't spoken up or uh, what would you, what lessons would you draw from avoiding being the next Boeing Air Max? Well, you're absolutely right. What they all have in common is that there were, you know, people, experts even who had insights or information that they did not feel able to share for whatever reason. And had it been shared earlier, we might have had a different outcome. So that's what they all have in common. Now, it becomes almost extraordinary to think how common 
you know, and how much this is a recurring phenomenon in organizations around the world. Like, why, why do we not do better? And I think that takes us back to our notion of, Matt's notion really, of organizations often inadvertently set up their practices and structures and even leadership examples in a way that discourages sharing the truth. And it's obviously problematic, but it, it, it's hard to sort of see it in a real time in the midst. You step back and you tell these stories and it's loud and clear and you say, well, you know, why would anyone do anything like that? But they do it in part because of outdated mental models, I believe. Mental models that say, you know, if people try hard and do their jobs right, they'll get the results full stop. That's, and they don't take into account that we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And, you know, sometimes people will try hard and stuff happens. And it wasn't their fault. It was reality itself sort of intervening. Or other times people will mail it in and get lucky and have good performance, right? So we, we have a sort of um, unscientific mental models about cause and effect in, in the modern world. This mental model piece is really interesting because one of the places I wonder if there's a disconnect is that I imagine most managers and leaders would say they create an environment of relatively high psychological safety. I can't imagine most would ad admit or know that it's low and I'm responsible for that. So it seems like there's a bit of a disconnect and we have to almost proactively create interventions. And I'd love yeah, to hear whether there's some more from you, Amy, and also Octavius, having worked practically within companies, how do we start to design more interventions to reinforce psychological safety? Let me say just a couple of quick things and then hand it over. But I, I, I think that you're right. I mean, most people don't think, oh, I, I set up an environment of low psychological safety. But many people either explicitly or implicitly believe that what what motivates people to do a good job is, is fear, right? A fear of the consequences. And they fail to appreciate that fear actually narrows cognition and makes it hard to do really hard knowledge work. Um, so, you know, so they, they, they may not set out to kind of create fearful environments, but they have this underlying thing. Well, isn't that the way that people will actually work hard, which is, you know, not really a very um, productive um, mindset, but to, to build it and, and to help, I think it does start your, your question implies, and I think it's true. It does start with a little bit of self-awareness. I mean, you have to help people see they have good intentions nearly all the time, but help people see like Martin Winterkorn, CEO of DW assumed that by being really tough and really direct, he'd get the result he wanted, which was this beautiful vehicle that would be environmentally sound and all the rest. He did not realize that the impact he actually had was that he wouldn't hear about problems mm -hmm. and that ultimately they would engineers would feel the only way to survive was to develop software to cheat the regulators rather than tell the truth up, up the chain of command. But we can help them, I think, with that self-awareness and then with just some of these leadership practices that really create the learning environment. I totally agree with Amy, and I think a really good example of this is the story of Microsoft. Uh, under previous regime of Steve Ballmer, uh, the performance management system was described in Vanity Fair as like the Hunger Games. You know, you, you were forced into a distribution and the bottom lot went. And 
people would actually try and find the worst person they could to work with because it increased their chances of getting a better rating at the end, which was obviously completely counterproductive for the business. And then when Sacha came in, there was a transformation of the performance management approach, which we were delighted to be involved with. And all of that was about removing the sense of ratings and scoring people. But that wasn't the important bit. It was actually what did matter. Um, what people were recognized for were three things. One was how much they borrowed or used other people's work in the work that they did. The second third was how much other people used their work. And only one third was what they actually achieved themselves. So that then helped set a very different cultural tone. But the real magic, and Amy's talked about this extensively, is in the role of the manager. And really, we set up managers to fail. I think this is a real problem in business across the world. That is a problem in society. If you look at films about managers, you'll see horrible bosses so good they made it twice and the devil wears Prada. But you won't find a film that makes a hero of the middle manager. But actually, the middle manager is the people that make organizations work and successful. And so what was really brilliant about what Microsoft did then was help educate their managers about how to have the right kinds of conversations, how to avoid being an innovation stifler and become an innovation nourisher. What are the ways and behaviours they can act in day-to-day that allow people to experiment and mm. to fail and to learn? And I'm thinking about when you talk about managers, there's a little bit here in terms of the shift to a more coaching mindset. So how do we enable managers to facilitate environments where people can innovate and can fail? And I think this is one of the most challenging asks of a modern manager and certainly kind of a big shift we've seen recently because the manager's performance typically is tied to their team members performance so it's not only tempting to step in and micromanage you're often kind of incentivized to step in and micromanage rather than allowing that space to potentially fail I'd love your input on how we can help managers adopt more of a coaching mindset but then also kind of to know when it's appropriate to and also when actually to take more of a manager or mentor role it's such a beautifully put idea. And in a way, micromanaging is like a short-term solution to an ongoing challenge, right? So if I jump in right now, I might be able to do it better than, than you. But I have literally gotten in the way of developing you as a resource who can do this for us, you know, longer term. So, and, and so often we have to explicitly take the kind of short-term hit to get the longer-term gain. Now that's, you know, not micromanaging doesn't mean just go away on vacation and come back and see what happened, right? It means being very thoughtful about what do I need to do to help you develop and, and do great work? And there may be, you know, there may be things I'm not, I'm not providing as a manager that I need to start providing, but they are not doing your work for you. There seems to be like a growing trend. We've seen it in politics, but we're also in the business leaders who sort of transcend and and become something more of never explain, never apologize. This almost opposite of psychological safety. Um, In a former life, I worked at Twitter and uh, a lot of my colleagues were still at Twitter recently when Elon Musk took over and he gave what I would regard as a prospective case study for what I've seen Amy work on. He gave a directive, which was, you need to ship this new product 
the the uh, the blue tick verification. You need to ship it in ten days. If you don't do it in ten days, I'm going to fire you. Now that's got enough of the VW diesel gate to it that you know I, I recognise the characteristics, and yet you know there's a new biography out of Elon Musk. He's he's celebrated as the the business leader of our generation. I just wonder if there's a conflict between. Who the, the icons that we seem celebrated for being decisive, for being um, uh, knowing themselves, and what we're recognizing that actually some humility and some willingness to be open for questions is actually the 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 source of greater success. How do we square those things? How do we make something which feels so gentle and egoless feel appealing to a wider audience? Wow, where do we begin? Um, I don't want to <laughs> dig into the specifics of, of Musk per se. And maybe he is being celebrated as certainly as a business leader of our day that says a lot about our day. Um, whether or not I would have, you know, willingness to predict future success for some of the enterprises that he's. Leading um, is another question, and 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 for me, I you know I think um, erratic behavior, unpredictable behavior um, in a leader, just in general, we won't name names, um, and and sort of fear um, as a as a management tool is ultimately unlikely to succeed very well in a in a uncertain, complex, interdependent world. Um, I mean, we can we can put up against that description. Um, Alan Mulally and 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 his results, and he's not unique, right? But the the kind of the steady, the um, here's where we're going, tough, clear, inviting, confident that with all of us working together, we can do this. Or Sacha uh, Nadella. I mean, there's there's plenty of counterparts that just make more sense for a world where uncertainty is high. And, and, and also a world where the stakes are high. Right? I mean, we need, we need a steadiness. We need a learning orientation. We need a willingness to do what it takes to inspire and engage others to achieve amazing things. Well, just to echo that, I think the, you have Musk, you have potentially Steve Jobs, who famously allegedly said, if you don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Sunday. And there's all this kind of macho chat. These are extreme outliers. They're one in a generation. And what Amy's describing is actually what makes successful business leaders. So if you want to be a successful business leader, you need to be emotionally self-regulated. We're just about to uh, publish a new research report on well-being. And we're looking at the five drivers of culture that most affect well-being. And one of those is certainty. And the more we feel a level of certainty, the greater our self-esteem, reassurance, and so forth. It increases our mental and physical, particularly mental health. But what happens is quite often people are unaware, I'll come back to our managers, what they're doing that's creating uncertainty. So your boss says to you, you know, Bruce, can I see you tomorrow for five minutes? You're like, Christ, what have I done? I'm going to lose sleep. Your boss says, Bruce, I love that report. I'd love to hear a bit more about it. Can I have five minutes with you tomorrow? And you're like, oh, fantastic. And you maybe have a drink or something in the evening and you relax. You feel great. So it doesn't take a lot. It's the 12 seconds Amy was talking about. It's all it takes to go from uncertainty to certainty. But creating certainty, emotional self-regulation, these and other attributes like it are consistently correlated with successful leadership. It's really what you're talking about as certainty is really about trustworthiness, 
right? Can, can I anticipate how you will respond or will you respond in some erratic, uncertain, unpredictable way? And so I'm going to be on pins and needles until I figure it out. And by the way, I can't think straight while I'm in that state. I'd love to dive into this uncertainty because, you know, we've probably experienced the greatest example of it with the pandemic. And certainly a lot of discussion we saw at that leadership level was, how do I talk confidently about this level of uncertainty? And Amy, I love the distinction you make with maybe it's truthfulness rather than certainty. Yeah, I just love your views on in this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world, how do leaders navigate this uncertainty without employees and teams feeling like they're on a boat and the wind is going to change constantly? Well, you know, that is going to be one of those tensions that Octavius spoke about, one of those tensions that we have to learn to live with. And I think it's a heck of a lot easier to live with it when we are when we make it discussable, right? So the the external uncertainty is here to stay. And so can we internally, you know, in our team, in our company, talk about it openly and with curiosity and interest? And can we minimize the uncertainty that we can minimize about each other's behavior or each other's reactions to things that might happen so that we can maximize our ability to cope effectively with the uncertainty that's out there. You know, it's, it's the almost a, a version of the serenity prayer, right? There's, there's things I cannot change and control and there's things I can. And, and let's find the, 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 the wisdom and the honesty with each other to, to do our very best given that reality. I totally agree with that. And to add to it, there's also that sense of belonging, the fact that we're in this together and that I'm with a tribe that's on my side, that's got my back, that we're trying to do something that matters. And yes, there will be winds that blur us from one side to the other, but we're all in this to try and resolve them and to navigate them. The, the, the last three, four years has brought some challenges just to try and establish the sense of belonging or the sense of trust that we've had. Um, people often talk to me, there was some data last week saying that the phenomenon of people having cameras off meetings still remains. And, and it strikes me that if you're in an environment, if, if psychological safety doesn't always scale, and I'd be interested in your take on that. But if you're in an environment where you're doing a meeting with 20 people and some of them are cameras off, it seems to me that that's less likely to produce a psychologically safe state where you don't necessarily feel comfortable with raising concerns. You don't even recognize all of these names. How has technology interrupted psychological safety? And, And what accommodations should we think about then if we want to create psychological safety while harnessing the benefits of working in a more flexible way? Well, you know, I think it's really um, important. Here, here will be an echo to make it discussable, but to, to make the issues you just described so beautifully discussable. So, I'll start by saying there is little doubt that um, remote work, it's certainly during the pandemic and beyond, um, creates hurdles to that sense of connection and belonging. And given that, it it isn't that we just throw up our hands in despair. We figure out how do we we manage this so that it's less of a risk. I think, for example, meetings, they should be shorter and more focused. 
And you should, you know, everyone who is there is needed for that meeting. And we should have a high quality conversation, all cameras on, you know, we have to be heavy handed. If, you know, if you're in meetings, if you find yourself in a lot of meetings where you aren't really needed and you might as well be just doing other work, you shouldn't be in that meeting, right? And we've got to get more disciplined, kind of rigorous about um, how we hold our meetings, how we engage the quiet voices, how we, you know, have we, how we keep them to the proper time length that the issue requires, um, use the tools we have. We might use the tools of, 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 of polling or, you know, go around the screen to, to, to get the input. Everyone in a meeting should feel they could be cold called at any moment to offer their thoughts, right? So that it actually won't work if you're doing something else at the same time. We should be clear and explicit that given, you know, that body language is harder to read on screen than in person, cameras are going to be essential and we're going to just do our very best. I'm going to, I see Matt nodding right now. And so I'm wondering like, what is Matt thinking? And I want to invite him in, right? So it's, it's um, recognize the gap, use a heavier hand to overcome it with discipline. And to give a practical example of what Amy's talking about and meetings, we're doing a major culture change program delighted to partner with City, the financial services group, about a year and a half through. And the, the first value they really wanted to deliver on in, the, in year one was ownership. And we ran a whole series of experiments and A-B tests for different habits to see which ones would do the greatest impact because they both have to be an easy enough habit to adopt uh, immediate gain from it so that people will keep using it and to increase ownership. And the key event that people cared about most are meetings. Uh, and we tested a whole range of habits around meetings. And the one that really worked was asking people in each meeting, why this, why now, why us? And this became so ingrained that it actually went into all the meeting invites. And you had to answer it if you were inviting people to a meeting. Uh, and they, they were they, when they first tested it, they were expecting like maybe get 10, 15% take up. They had 68% take up at the beginning. It was phenomenal. And it's now spread across the group. So I think there's something very powerful about using the events that are a part of our natural fabric of work, in this case, meetings. And then A, B, testing a whole series of habits. The ones they thought would work or we thought would work didn't end up working. But it's exactly the point of intelligent failure that Amy writes so lucidly about. And then you go, well, actually, this is the one that is maybe not as grand or as big or as clever as we thought would be brilliant. But it's the one that that gets attraction and gets a a level of transfer. Uh, And through that route, you can really start to, to affect culture and then that openness in meetings and you only do that when you realize we don't know right you only start experimenting with new practices new habits when you realize the old ones don't work and these examples of those experiments are really interesting because they're happening it sounds like and can happen at a team level you know we've talked quite a lot about organizationally what needs to happen from leaders how can people who are going to be middle managers have just started out that aren't in a senior position to make these sweeping changes start to make impact and affect the psychological safety that they're a part of? You know, I have a strong view on this, which is that the only change you can affect is at a team. If you're, if you're the CEO, you get to affect the, the, the um, top management team. Um, and fortunately, some of them will affect you know, their teams and on and on it goes. But so spend much less time worrying about what you can't control or influence and a great deal more time making a great team, a great learning oriented, you know, experimenting, testing team.
team, either one that you run or one you're simply a member of? Um, one, of the, one of the people who claims to espouse psychological safety quite publicly is Ray Dalio. And, and while I, I find a lot of the stuff that comes out about Bridgewater a little bit too close to PR, one of the things that is interesting about his, the Bridgewater approach um, from when he was sort of right at the helm was the idea that we would reduce meetings to as few people as possible, but anyone can watch the recording. Right, that seems to be trying to systematise the idea of we're going to get most from this meeting and the transparency that if you just want information exchange. The interesting thing is right now, we're, we're sort of to, right now, te- technologically, any of us can, it seems, have that um, Bridgewater experience. I've been sending bots this week, uh, Google bots to meetings. Uh, Microsoft are allowing you to do that. And so for the first time, we could opt out of attending a meeting and just get the information. Now, at the very essence, that means technology might be enabling organisations to be more psychologically safe, to work in a in a better way. Are there any other Are there any other examples of technology that you think actually this could be a game changer? Or what's your perspective on that in particular? You know, it's it's interesting. I'm just reflecting on this real time. You're talking about yes, I could have access. You know, any individual could have more access to what's going on in the organization, and that does give a certain sense of transparency that that may help everyone behave in a way that sort of I should I should act the way I should act, knowing that it's totally discoverable by everyone. But that doesn't help us understand about contributions, right? And and you know, I guess I'm, I'm primarily interested in psychological safety from the perspective of how do we help people contribute their ideas, their questions, their concerns, get the help they need, right? Sort of, so it's, it's the, it's the part that we put in. And, and I do think it's good, you know, if don't be in a meeting where you're just there as an observer. I, I think the, the reality is though, the, the reason why I call upon it is that a lot of people, I think there was some research two weeks ago saying that if you work hybrid, you spend half of your week in meetings. And principally, if you, if you said to people, why are you spending 20 hours a week in meetings? The main reason they'll, they'll say is information exchange. And so if we can reduce this ballast that we all carry, that, you know, it, the meetings were only in to hear what's going on. If we can reduce that, to a series of bullet points that are sent to us afterwards, then the place that we can contribute suddenly becomes something that we're no longer weary and burnt out and exhausted. And actually, we can focus on the good parts of our work. And so that, for me, is the potential upside of this. I see. Now, that is interesting. Right? So it could be that technology could help us identify those bullet points. Right? So it's not just extra work for you because you now have to write that report, um, but that let's say, you know, ChatGPT does it for us. Um, and then I just get a quick, you know, WhatsApp or something that, that, that gives me what I need to know. Um, so that, that, that could both increase transparency and reduce the, the sort of load of being at things that aren't really efficient in that way. Amy, we're sort of out, almost out of time, and, and both of you really. Uh, look, for, looking forwards, what are the things that you are interested to research next? What are the, the things that you are on your mind to try to get your head around? Are you interested in generational impact of, of the way that work is evolving? What could you, what could you um, mark our card for, thinking about what's to come? You know, generational impact, cross cultural differences, 
cross other identity group differences are, are, are all big areas for, I've been looking at these workplace interactions from the most general, like every, you know, everybody's a person, everybody is a person, but I, I do think there's, there's certainly a cry that I hear for more specificity and a deeper understanding of, of um, say, for example, how there's an un, non-level playing field for failing right? If, uh, across groups and to understand that better and then also to understand ways to overcome it are all of great interest to me. You said at the beginning of this call, Bruce, um, that maybe psychology wasn't in the best of states. Uh, and I would rather like Amy counter that with the analogy that... No, no. I, I asked what state you considered... I, I, I have no opinion on this. That is true. That is true. But then you gave <laughs> examples to lead us the other way. You've seen the same headlines I've seen. You know, people doubt the data now. I think what's interesting is that my analogy would be to compare behavioural science in the 21st century to medical science in the beginning of the 20th century. And before medical science appeared, it was apothecary and bleeding and leeches and all sorts of nonsense, as I think we can now refer to it. And medical science ran experiments and discovered things like penicillin. But it also got things wrong. And it also made discoveries that proved are later to be inaccurate. And it's exactly the same with behavioural science. We're learning about the brain. We're learning about how it works, learning about human behaviour. And we'll make errors on the way and there'll be experiments that aren't fully tied. But what I'm thrilled about is I think there is a much more codified and scientific way of organising work, of leading work, of creating cultures where people can prosper and businesses can prosper. So my mission, if you like, and our mission at MindGym is to help codify that, make it accessible, and use the evidence to drive uh, business performance. So it's it's more facts, not facts. Love it. Amy, Octavius, but Amy, I just want to say I'm so immensely grateful for your time because um, you're someone who's – anyone who does a job or thinks about work – is indebted to, to your work. And so quite so. We're, we're so grateful for your generosity of time. Well, thank you. I, I, I do think that's a bit of an overstatement, but thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Thank you to Amy and Octavius. Truly an honour to chat to Amy and a brilliant, enthralling conversation. <laughs> and while Amy didn't directly criticise Elon Musk, when she talked about erratic behaviour of leaders being unlikely to succeed, it felt like it transcended just Elon Musk and went into maybe the realm of politics as well. Brilliant discussion. I'm so grateful. It's kind of ticked one of the big names off the list. I've chatted to some of the biggest names in in work psychology and these very few bigger than Amy Edmondson. So thank you to Amy. Massive, huge, huge, huge thanks to Mind Jim and Octavius Black for making the interview possible and for adding such wisdom to the conversation. If you've enjoyed this, please do share it with other people and by all means sign up to the newsletter and you'll find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. I've been Bruce Daisley. Matt and Ellen will be back next time. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.